Hello and welcome to Conversations, Makings of a Voice. This is the first in a series of community-oriented discussions to be shared on the Taproot Edmonton Presents podcast. My name is Karen Unland. I am the co-founder of Taproot Edmonton, a publication that seeks to help our community understand itself better. You're about to hear a conversation inspired by Makings of a Voice, a theatrical song cycle that will be streamed online by Skirts of Fire from March 4th to 14th. You'll hear from these four panelists, Dr. Wanda Costin, Dean of the School of Business at McEwen University and this year's Honorary Skirt, Dana Wiley, the writer and performer of Makings of a Voice, director Vanessa Sabarin, and cellist Christine Hansen. When we recorded this conversation earlier this year, we were expecting Makings of a Voice to be a live theatrical performance, with Dana Wiley accompanied by musicians on stage. The production has since been reimagined to accommodate restrictions put in place to protect us all from COVID-19, and it's now a solo show to be experienced in your home instead of in the theater. And while we won't hear Christine's cello in the piece, I'm glad you can still hear her voice in this conversation as she and her fellow panelists reflect on the nature of motherhood, identity, and community. I would like to acknowledge that we recorded this podcast on Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of the Tree, Nakoda, Blackfoot, Dene, and Salto people, and a gathering place for many generations of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. We are grateful to have the opportunity to continue sharing stories from this place, and we recognize our responsibility to acknowledge and amplify voices from these lands. And now let's talk about makings of a voice. This is a theatrical song cycle about discovering our individual identity within generational narratives. It is billed as a personal journey situated somewhere between the past and the present, between motherhood and daughterhood, between music and monologue, and it follows a messy trajectory into the heart of one woman's story and provides a compelling argument for why our stories need to be told. So beginning with you, Dana, you are the woman whose story this is. What made you want to write this piece? Well, at first there was a sort of functional, practical reason that I wanted to write it, which is that I'm a musician, but I also have a background in theater and I'm a mother and I spent some time in academia and, you know, it all feels a bit haphazard sometimes. And I, I really felt compelled to find a way to try to integrate my life, including my background. And, you know, as a woman in her early forties and as a mother, the things that get me fired up are, you know, general feminist themes and, you know, my, all the conundrums of living my life as a woman in a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. And it started off there. And through some facilitation, I kind of did some work and came to the realization that it needed to be about me and my roots and and my family and the, the questions and emotions and guilt and all the things that are wrapped around that. In the script, you say this great line, I come from a long line of women who shouldn't have had kids in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> Such a... 
a lovely through line for the whole piece. And I will preface by saying I haven't seen it. I've only read it. So obviously this is a piece that has to be performed and, and absorbed and, and not just read. But that line certainly leapt out. If I was going to answer that question, I would say I came from I come from a long line of women who weren't ready to have kids, but more or less figured it out. And I want to ask the rest of our panelists, where would you situate yourself in that line? So Vanessa, let's start with you. My mother was very excited to be a mother, and that was really kind of her center. And so she mm-hmm. she was maybe an early mother, but not you know not really twenties. That was really her a driving force for her. My grandmothers, I think, were mothers because that was kind of what you did. So I I, I couldn't actually say whether or not they felt they would be mothers. That just was their role. And then Christine, this is um, an interesting one for me. I would say I came from a long line of women that fought to have kids Mm. (laughs) and then discovered that they were unsupported. They had a, a vision as to how it was going to be, and it ended up being something very different. I am a mother to a young girl, and I chose to have a child on my own, which was not what I would have ever imagined Mm. I would have done, but I have no regrets, but it is a much bigger thing than I could have ever imagined. And my mother and her mom, they both fought in different ways to have their children. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. And then Wanda. Very powerful sharing. So I'm, I'm delighted to be part of this discussion. I'm an adoptive mom. Ah. And I confess, I've never thought to ask my mom <laughs> whether or not she wanted. Uh, given the time I'm, in a, I'm an African-American woman, and given the age at which my mom had me, I'm sure uh, I was not planned. And so I'm grateful that she decided to, to have me. She struggled, I'm sure, quite a bit, but she is a very proud mother and has inspired and pushed her children to do things that I think, given the time, she couldn't do. Mm. right? As a single mom, like Christine, I chose to have my son, adoptive parent. He was six when I got him. He's now 24. Oh, wow. I have to do the math, but I think I was just about to be 40 or 40 when we became a family. So a very different experience. I would say, I don't think any woman, even when she's planning it, has any idea what it means to be a mom and is (laughs) ill-prepared, right? There's no manual and you're just winging it. And then, and Dana, you talk about your children as well in in the piece, but remind us because the listeners won't know. I have an eight-year-old daughter and a two-year-old son. Right. So I'm in the thick of it, like Vanessa. Yeah. Yeah. The thick of it. Exactly. So I'm asking you these questions about motherhood and daughterhood because they're so integral to the play, but it, it seems to me that men are rarely asked about how they view themselves as fathers and sons. So... I want to know, do you think it's a strength or is it a burden to be asked or to have to think about yourself so generationally and biologically? I'll start with you, Dana. Wow, this is such a great question. And I think ultimately it's it's both because I think ultimately it is a strength. It's a, it's a strength of women that we bear the next generation and that we integrate that with all of the other things, with all of our other ambitions and all of our other interests and all of our other passions, that what we're striving towards is an integration. 
where it becomes a burden is, is in that the fact that our society is set up in such a way that it kind of makes that impossible, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you're constantly, when thinking about that as a burden, what I'll think about is like the fact that women who are applying for jobs will be asked, well, you know, what are your plans for having kids? You know, they'll, that will be considered in terms of whether they're an attractive candidate. Well, are they going to just go off and have kids? And, you know, men are allowed to compartmentalize their lives in a way that our society wants you to do that, encourages you to do that. But on the other hand, I I think when it comes down to it, it's a beautiful strength. What do you think about that, Wanda? Is it a strength or a burden to think of ourselves as mothers and daughters all the time? Well, I I should uh, come clean and say that I'm a sociologist. So this stuff is very intriguing (laughs) to me, right? And I actually do work on uh, race and gender inequality. And and I I applaud Dana for, for making that central because the problem is uh, the burden society puts on us. I mean, women are very strong beings, primarily because uh, society forces us to be. And this notion that men can just be, no one ever mm. asked. One of the things that frustrates me quite regularly is how men are lauded over because they, before the pandemic, they might take an afternoon off and go watch some event in which their child was participating. But if a mom happens to be working and can't get there, well, she's just the worst mom on the planet. But Mm. dad doesn't ever have to show up and shows up one afternoon and, oh, he's just the best dad, right? (laughs) So, so these, and, and to be fair, they're socially constructed, but they began because of the biology, right? Because Mm. we are the ones who bear. And let's remember, this is, this is historic and still continues today, blows my mind personally, I might add, but you know, the notion of just still taking your husband's name is like somehow we're not good enough just to be ourselves, right? And that somehow yeah, yeah, that protection yeah, exactly. comes through. So it is it is a strength, but, but it's a strength of character and conviction that I think is we're born with to some degree because we watch our moms, right? And all the things they have to do. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. the problem becomes that's perpetuated generationally, that that's just the way mom's got to be. And we've never said, time out. This isn't how we have to be. Yeah. Vanessa, as, as a, a mom in the thick of it, do you think of thinking of yourself as, as a mom is a strength or a burden? Yeah, I, I would agree and echo what Dana and Wanda have both said that it's, it's a lot about context in which we find ourselves. I think that there's nothing wrong with thinking of yourself as a part of a tapestry that you're generations where you are placed amidst that tapestry of of human existence is is powerful and meaningful and actually quite important and perhaps something that we neglect regularly and so I think that there is power in that where I get I, I also feel that burden is that as well as being able to go out and say apply for jobs I'm also thinking about, well, why is the work of motherhood so devalued that I am not valuable enough if I am just, in quotation marks, a mother? Mm-hmm. That that work is just sort of assumed and it is not also valued. It, it, there's a kind of an empowerment and a disempowerment that happens in becoming a mother. You gain all of this experience and, and learning and, and, and then there's no way to affect society. There's no place for you to go and have influence with these things because your perspective is just sort of taken for granted. That experience is just sort of expected. And so if you wanted to be a mother, that that isn't ever enough. And it isn't ever valuable. 
that sort of trips me up often, as well as being able to like do the things and Im- impact the world as you wish. But women should be able to work and mother because it's not enough to just mother. And I also think that the the other part of this is that the expressions of motherhood go beyond biology now too. We're understanding that there are many expressions of motherhood beyond gender as well. And I think that that is something that is is really important for us to think about, about how we place ourselves as mothers within a tapestry. Yeah. And I love that metaphor of the tapestry, which which you must be as the director of this show pulling out as well to manifest. How does what uh, Vanessa said uh, resonate with you, Christine? Well, it's interesting listening to Dana, Wanda and Vanessa, because I don't know if I can really add. <laughs> They've, they covered it. I resonate with everything that has been said. I'm a full-time musician, artist, and have been my whole adult life. And I'm also a full-time mom to a nine-year-old daughter. It's interesting just... Oh, I, I, to be totally honest, I'm kind of speechless. This is kind of hitting me in the gut and in the heart in a way that is kind of shaking me. That's, <laughs> that's honestly where I'm at right now when I really contemplate and hear from other women that are mums, working mums and artists. I don't think I have anything to add at this point. I think it's been covered. I'll pull a little bit on a on a different thread then as well with you then sure. because I think like we've talked a little bit about the societal expectations of women and the sort of what Wanda was saying about the uneven playing field that mothers are often on compared with fathers. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the uh, constant feeling of inadequacy of motherhood is internal as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. tell me Christine whether you are constantly having a voice Mm -hmm. in your head saying you're Uh, terrible at this. (laughs) Well, that's okay. That's an interesting question because I'm let's, I might as well just be completely candid here. I would have to say the role model that I had as a mother was not great. Mm -hmm. And as a mature woman now, I really understand how I really didn't have a mom. I mean, there was the presence of a female in my home I had a roof over my head, my basic needs were met, etc. But I didn't really have a mother. I've been thinking and exploring this, I would say, intensely, since my daughter was born, so nine years ago. And I find myself every moment of interaction with my daughter evaluating whether or not I'm doing the best I possibly can because I do not want to repeat what I experienced myself. And Mm -hmm. so it's not so much I feel inadequate. I feel like I'm doing all that I can. But at the same time, I do notice that I don't have a reference or, or the reference that I do have, I absolutely know I do not want or do not want to repeat. So the term that Wanda used, winging it, I am winging it big time with my own mothering. And I'm actually looking to other women that I'm not related to as my role models and actually learning to reach out to other women and other mothers to understand things better that I may, I 
potentially would have intrinsically understood if I actually had a real mother, a mothering mother. So Dana, as someone who comes from a long line of women who shouldn't have had kids in the first place, does what Christine says resonate with you as well, or is your experience slightly different? I, I wouldn't say that my experience is exactly like Christine's. I'm, Christine and I are friends, so I know a little bit about her experience, and I wouldn't say they're exactly the same. Where, where I can kind of feel Christine a little bit is feeling like a little bit like, yeah, I wasn't, I sometimes feel like I wasn't entirely mothered as a child. And I, even though I say it in the show, I don't necessarily mean that I think she shouldn't have ever had kids and that that, that wasn't, you know, if she was following her true destiny that she shouldn't have done that. But simply that mostly because of outside factors, she raised kids, she was raising kids in her early twenties, quite isolated, having not been able to, you know, have the means to discover who she was as a person along the way. While I was growing up, my mother was battling with a lot of feelings like that she wasn't getting to express her full personhood through raising her kids. And I think that when I look back on it now, I think part of the reason for that is is that she was so isolated. That kind of speaks to the larger themes of what we're talking about, what everyone has touched on. Because I, I think that, you know, generation after generation of, of mother, at least in, you know, for the last few generations in our contemporary society, I think mothers are more isolated than arguably they should be. And, you know, that things might be different if we were raising our kids in community. But when mothers are isolated, you are really thrown into the space where you really are winging it. You know, not that winging it is necessarily an inherently bad thing, but where it moves into a troublesome space is when you're isolated, you don't have great, you don't have a lot of support and a lot of reinforcement when you when you do have those moments of like, am I am I just failing at doing everything? You know, I often have, have feelings as a mother, like, you know, I'm trying to do all the, you know, I'm, I'm writing shows, I'm playing, I'm playing gigs, I'm trying to make enough money and I'm trying to raise my kids. And so often I felt like I'm not managing to, to do any of the things I'm trying to do. And, and I think that that's what, when I look back, I think that's what my mother was struggling with too. Yeah. And I just I do want to make it clear, none of you, none of us are failing at it. We just feel like we're failing at it. Oh, yeah. oh absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where community is so important, you know. Yeah. To, it, for me, it makes all the difference to be able to, you know, tell a, a friend, another another mom, how, how I'm feeling about just what a terrible mother I am and just have them say, oh, I feel like that all the time, too. Yeah. And then you can go, oh, oh okay. <laughs> you know? I think you've done that for me, Dana. For yeah, sure. you've done it for me too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> wanted to share on top of that also some of this inadequacy is because, uh, as well, I went through a period of shock and this like sort of major transformation that had to happen, and 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 it is a transformation becoming a mother, a parent. But a mother is a giant transformation, and transformation is not something we're generally good at. Mm. It takes a lot of work for us to change even a little bit societally as well as personally. It, it can be very difficult. But on top of that is also this feeling of inadequacy also comes up when you express a need. You're kind of told often by instead of embraced, that need sort of taken care of and embraced is often told, well, <laughs> then you don't know what you're doing. And, mm. and, and societal structures will not bend to the needs of a family in that way. You're, you're expected to do all of the things and have none of the things influence each other. There's a lot of this in theater, you know, you know, leave it at the door. When you come into the rehearsal hall, you leave your life at the door. 
so that you can be a blank slate for working, as if we can separate ourselves like that, as if things don't influence each other and, and add to and contribute to an effect. And, and I think that's another reason why we feel inadequate. And there's all these books that, that, you know, tell you what you should be doing. And we're constantly inundated with how we should be, what we should do to be an exemplary human being. And I think that when mothers express their needs, it's just always shut down. And that burden is laid at their feet as if it is their fault. So given all of that, and then when we layer a pandemic on top of that, where we all have to be doing all this stuff at home often, it seems to me, Wanda, that that makes things even harder. So putting your academic hat on, what have you observed about the way that this pandemic has exacerbated those pressures on women? Well, absolutely. I, I want to start with saying, preach, Vanessa, preach, sister. Mm-hmm. I mean, my goodness, that was powerful. Thank you for sharing uh, as well, uh, Dana and Christine. Well, it's no secret, right? And, and unfortunately, we haven't shifted. Right? We're in the 21st century. We're still doing the same thing. The research continues to show that uh, women are still overwhelmingly responsible for the domestic labor. And even when we're privileged and fortunate as I am, to have the financial resources to purchase that labor, we still manage it, right? So, and then when the students or or, our children are working from home, somehow it's still the mom's responsibility to make sure the children are doing their work and homework and situated while dad goes into a little room somewhere and, and does his job, right? So it's very societal, it's very directed, it's very structural, right? And, and I also wanted to, to comment on, on what the, the others were saying, which is I want us to also acknowledge, which I think is some of what uh, Vanessa was saying, that we don't know what a quote unquote good mom is. It's told to us and our unwillingness to be transparent and authentic to share our fears um, because we're developing the next generation of humanity. That's, I mean, that's a huge burden and we take it seriously, right? And sometimes we're fortunate to have partners. I'm single, so I adopted my son by myself. And and people made fun of this. I, again, just a gentle reminder, I'm from the US. People made fun of her when she said this and it became my mantra. When Hillary Clinton said it takes a village to raise a child, she was 100% correct. And our indigenous uh, sisters remind us and communities remind us that everything done in community actually is to the benefit of all people in that community and who engage with that community. But we're so individualistic and think we have to do it ourselves. And the bar is set high. And I want to the last thing I want to say is uh, sociologically, we have this thing called symbolic violence and it has to do with power And, and the worst form of that is the notion that the person in power, the people in power who make all the decisions or, or have the luxury of dictating what even gets talked about, what's on the agenda, that they actually don't have to do anything in terms of influence or coercion because the persons being oppressed have adopted their view of the world. And that's what's happened for a lot of women, that we've adopted society's view of what a great mom is, much of which is depicted, by the way, on a tube or in a movie, right? Which isn't real, 
that becomes problematic because when we internalize that, it's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So I just think things get exacerbated. And one of the benefits we could take away from this is this notion of self-care is, you know, I'm I'm famous for saying never let a crisis go to waste. So (laughs) do the things we should have been doing in the first place. But now we can say, hey, it's a pandemic. I got to take a time out. I got to go for a walk. And no one says anything. We should have been doing that the whole time. Yeah, that it feels like the the crisis has created a lot of awareness of things that what like so many of the things that we do are just made up. Why don't we just not do those things? <laughs> Easier said than done, but I think you're right that there's some some things to grab onto as possibilities. Let's pause for a moment to hear a song from Makings of a Voice, the main stage play at the 2021 Skirts of Fire Festival. Here's Dana Wiley performing Cry Out. Holder of worlds, servant of peace, let yourself cry out. Because you are justified, you are beautiful. You can fall apart I don't mind I don't mind Stars have already heard your cries They are singing through you The sweetest lullaby So holder of words Weaver of song Let your 
Now let's get back to our conversation with performer Dana Wiley, director Vanessa Sabran, cellist Christine Hansen, and Skirts of Fire honorary skirt Dr. Wanda Coston on the themes explored by Makings of a Voice. Dana, your play also talks about race. And my interpretation is that while white supremacy is obviously extremely bad for racialized people, it's also damaging for white people like me, because the act of making whiteness the default creates a kind of rootlessness and storylessness and disconnection from previous generations. Have I interpreted that correctly? Yeah. I mean, I like to refer to the whole system as as white supremacist capitalist patriarchy that's a term that i've that i've heard that i that i like to use because it kind of encompasses a larger scope of the processes that are going on you know an interesting part of the process of colonialism and colonization is that you know in stages various groups of newcomers were offered whiteness you know when that was well and ultimately it needed to be invented to you know because as you know thinking about in the states like you know all, all of these people are captives are brought over from Africa in terrible conditions, completely against their will. People, waves of people start coming over from, from Europe and from other places and, and are the underclass. You know, there's a, a small sort of overclass of people who are holding power over an ever increasing and more diverse and diverse group of people under them. And so the, the way of dealing with that, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not an academic I'm, well, I'm a perpetual researcher, but the way I understand it is is that more and more groups of people were sort of offered whiteness as a way of ultimately stopping, you know, the people in those underclasses from from getting together and speaking out to have more rights. And in the case of my family, my maternal grandparents grew up in the Jewish ghetto of Winnipeg in, you know, very, very poor and and their parents were immigrants and refugees. They were part of a particular generation in that, in the north end of Winnipeg, who who were able to make good, you know, they, they knew their parents had sacrificed for them and they knew that they owed it to their parents to work hard and to get themselves up onto a a socioeconomic stratum that was higher than where their parents had come from. And a bit of a phenomenon from this particular generation in Winnipeg, many of them made very good for themselves. What I see has happened in, in my family being offered you know, whiteness in that way and being being offered, you know, the chance to kind of enter into the mainstream. In my family anyway, we there was a real disconnection from from roots. It was like a that was the sacrifice that needed to be made for for prosperity and privilege and you know mainstreamness, participation in in mainstream society. And how how I feel it that none of us are safe from white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, you know, including the people at the top. I mean, if you think about I'm digressing here, but like, who wants to be Donald Trump? Like, can you imagine anyone wanting to be that guy? You know, mm-hmm. so you, you know, even the most empowered people are not safe from the system because it's ultimately it requires of us that all of us that we lose our humanity. It's the whole system is anti-humanity. It's anti-community. It's anti-ritual. It's anti-roots. It, it has to be. The, the people who have been most overtly oppressed, that seems to be where we see the most beautiful and strongest forms of resistance as a white woman. I, I suppose I feel like I, you know, I, I grew up buying into the idea of of meritocracy and, and individual achievement. And that if I, you know, if I do X, Y, Z and I work hard and I do all these things, then I should be able to, I'm part of the privileged class. So I can achieve all these things. You know, much later you realize that there's no there's no room for who you are as a person in that. That ultimately it has to strip us all of our roots in order to 
to perpetuate. You know, as I explore all these ideas, which are which are very complex and which I'm just beginning to grapple with, you know, I just wanted to be clear that I'm I'm very aware that there's no element to what I'm saying of, of like, hey, you know, I'm oppressed too. Hey, we're oppressed too. Um, because I, you know, and I want to put out there that I've, I'm very privileged to have lived a life of, of material comfort because my family was able to access whiteness. And I, I no way do I want to compare that or, you know, put it up against the genocide that has been put on the indigenous people of North America. Wanda, what do you think of what Dana just had to say? Well, she's on point. I mean, she doesn't have to be an academic. Uh, and, and I appreciated her saying that she is a researcher, right? Because that's what's key. It's, it's this quest mm -hmm. for knowledge and understanding. And she's quite right. I mean, there's plenty of evidence, uh, documented evidence that shows uh, as people immigrated to the United States, and of course, that's my context, so I apologize. But as people immigrated, whiteness evolved, right? When, when Italians first came to the United States, they were not white, but they became white, right? Right. And so she's quite right. But what we're unwilling to acknowledge is that it's a social construct, folks. Like race isn't real. Like, wake up. It's not hey, real. Yes. Right? Jeez, <laughs> um, Louise. But we put, uh, much to Dana's point, we, we put all these parameters around it. And, and I will say this, you know, I, I think at its core, it's based upon resources. And because of, you know, and I'm a, I'm a dean of a school of business, just want to come clean. But because of the capitalistic approach we have to the economy, which creates haves and haves nots in, in a variety of ways, I actually refer to, to what we have in the US now as hyper-capitalism, like it's just over the top. And what that means is that there really are limited resources, even though we know they're really not limited. There, there actually are quite sufficient resources on the planet for all humanity. There really are. But the way we've divvied up that pie and hoarded resources means that people are fighting for access to resources. And then when they get them, there's a propensity, at least of the majority, based upon the past, to keep things the way they are as if it were the natural order of things. But it is not the natural order of things. And then we extrapolate all of these particular characteristics and capabilities based upon how one presents in the world and that's a fallacy, right? So there's a lot of complex issues that are at play here, and it takes a lot to begin to unpack them. But I'm, I'm deeply touched by, by Dana's commentary and, and what she's trying to do and address by these various dimensions in my world of inequality. The people in our society who who have the job of challenging some of those things that we, we accept as the natural order of things when they're just made up are artists. So I'll bring it back to you, starting with Vanessa, is as, as the director of the piece and as an artist, do you feel like there's a role that you have played or can play to challenge that status quo that's so dangerous? Yeah, I, I mean... I think, uh, yes, I think, I think that storytelling, and by storytelling, I mean uh, communicating artistically human experience through a process of, of researching and examining and questioning. So that storytelling could be musical, storytelling can be visual art, storytelling isn't just trapped to language. Storytelling or, or artistry is powerful. It is extremely powerful. And I, I, I am sad that I've gone most of my 25 years of 
professional experience. And I'm only in the last, say, five years have been really coming to understand the power that we that we wield, that we hold. And, and I question if we are responsible with that. Mm. I, I don't know that we have accepted the responsibility of our platform. Sometimes I feel like I don't know if we have. And so I think that is something that the that that I am doing uh, as an artist is to examine my relationship to, to that responsibility of questioning these systems and structures. One of the things that I was thinking a lot about is uh, in, in through your questions, which are excellent questions, of course, we are a part of a hierarchy of power and that it only wants to perpetuate this power. And by empowering others, by empowering our collective we can change that. So I think part of what we do as artists, as women, is to empower each other and is to question, is to allow. There's there's also a, a question between, you know, our our sort of scientific brain and the way that we want to isolate and categorize and separate everything as if it can be put in little compartments, as if it is not holistic. And I think that is, there's value in that. It is allowing us to come up with a, you know, a a vaccine, uh, you know, and, and hopefully all of these things are beneficial, but it also severs any sort of intuitive knowledge, any sort of collaborative or collective or community wisdom. It sort of debunks and dismisses that. And I think that that's something that we need to actually hold strong within ourselves. We need to question it so that we don't just go blindly forward. But uh, I think that that's something we have an opportunity to do by expressing personal experiences that are a part of a collective experience and to understand our part within a whole Christine, as an artist, as a musician, what what connects with you from what Vanessa just said? Well, it's interesting because I've been listening to all of you and I really feel that my role or my part in this, firstly, is to support, as a musician, support Dana and her work, which I believe in wholeheartedly on so many levels. And I'm sort of, I feel like I'm participating as a musician, as a player, as a nonverbal presence, (laughs) and that whatever I may contribute artistically or musically, that something will be communicated through that. I'm I'm a mom, I'm a single mom, I'm also an artist. I think the, it's been covered and I don't think I could add any more in a verbal way to what has just been expressed. But in terms of my role within this piece and this project, I am just a vibe. And I know Dana and I have talked about this before, where you bring people together or artists together based a lot on who they are as people and their energy and what they can contribute artistically. And that's how I feel within this project that I want to support it as a mom, as a, Oh, it's, it's, it's a really big thing. (laughs) I hope (laughs) what I'm trying to say is coming across, but I am not an academic. I wouldn't say I'm particularly literary Mm -hmm. and I really do rely heavily on my music to communicate. And that's who I am. 
in this in this work as part of Dana's project. We're almost out of time, so I, I think I will give the last word to to Dana on what feeling do you want people to leave Makings of a Voice with? I mean, for women who come see it, I, I would love for them to leave feeling validated and and seen, empowered to tell their own stories, I think. And I mean, I'd love to, to finish off my bit of talking with a bit of text that really inspired me. At a, when I was at a point with the story when where I was just beginning to write the script and I realized it needed to be about me and my family. And I was in that kind of wobbly time in that process where I was feeling like, who cares about, like (laughs) who's going to care about my story and my, my family. And I, through complete chance, I came across a book written in the, I did the late sixties, early seventies by Carol P. Christ. And I opened up, you know, I came across this book completely accidentally. And I opened it up to a page. And the first thing I saw when I looked at this book was this little paragraph, which says women's stories have not been told. And without stories, there is no articulation of experience without stories. A woman is lost when she comes to make the important decisions of her life. She does not learn to value her struggles, to celebrate her strengths, to comprehend her pain without stories. She cannot understand herself. So that gave me the wherewithal to to move forward. And I think it speaks to what Vanessa was saying as well about, you know, the, it's it's important for us as as women and as artists to to keep telling stories to to help other women understand that that we we are owed our stories and that we should all we all need to own our stories and tell our stories, tell our stories to each other and validate each other. It's a very powerful way to end. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for your insights and, and everything that you've shared with us today. I can't wait for other people to hear this. The world premiere of Makings of a Voice will be streamed online from March 4th to 14th. Visit skirtsoffire.com for tickets. Taproot Edmonton is collaborating with Skirts of Fire because we want to include your voice as we plan our coverage of the 2021 municipal election. Our People's Agenda project asks, what key issue do you want the candidates to talk about as they compete for your votes and why? Visit taprootedmonton.ca and click on People's Agenda to have your say. Visit skirtsoffire.com to find the entire program presented by Edmonton's only theater and multidisciplinary arts organization that features women identifying and non-binary artists. In addition to Makings of a Voice, Skirts of Fire is offering a whole bunch of online and outdoor experiences this year. I hope you can join us there. Thank you and be sure that you subscribe to Taproot Edmonton Presents so that you don't miss future conversations from Taproot Edmonton. Thank you.